this morning at Prairie View. Uh, David gave a great summary of uh, the events of Reformation Day in 1517, uh, coming up on 500 years, which will be a big, important celebration. Um, if you'd like another summary of that moment in church history, but you really like your summaries of history put in cartoon form to polka music, uh, I would encourage you to Google the Reformation polka. Uh, it's very it's very educational. It's three minutes and 54 seconds long. I've watched it several times. Uh, so feel free to go home and look that up. Not right now, though, because we're in the middle of something. So uh, with that, again, we're glad that you're here, glad that you're well-rested. Uh, just very grateful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. So last week, we got some very practical of time. And while the preacher's wisdom may have been helpful in some ways... We also discovered that he had a limited perspective of time. The preacher's problem is that he's only worried about the time we have under the sun. The time that we have in this life because he didn't see the things that you and I have seen. The preacher didn't see Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And it's only through keeping his death and resurrection front and center It's only by being continually reminded that at the right time, as Paul says in Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Only then can we truly have a proper perspective of time. And only then can we use our time well for God's glory. Today we're going to see what wisdom the preacher has to offer on some other very practical areas of life. Areas like work, status, and wealth. How should we view these three things, work, status, and wealth? How important are they? And are they, like everything else according to the preacher so far, vain? Are they meaningless? Are they emptiness? Are they frustration? And spoiler alert, I think we're going to discover, like we discovered with time, that we can only have a proper perspective of work, status, and wealth. When we look at them through the lens of Christ. So with that, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse four. If you're using one of our Bibles, this will be located on page 472. And if you don't own a Bible, as always, feel free to take one home with you. But before we do any reading, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we are very grateful uh, for this morning, this time that we have to get together and uh, see faces that so many of us know from long ago, uh, in my case, to meet Alex for the first time uh, and just to hear what you're doing in his life and what you're doing in his future um, and just the, the role that Prairie View has played in that in the past. Uh, we're grateful and humbled uh, to have been a part of that. Father, we're also grateful that uh, roughly 500 years ago, uh, the Reformation occurred and And a dedication to your scripture was rediscovered. And God, I pray that that would continue uh, in the life of our church and in our own individual lives, that we would look to your word as our authority. And God, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, everything that we've learned so far, everything we'll learn today and in the weeks ahead. And I pray that we will look to you to discover that everything is not vain. Everything is not meaningless, especially when we see everything in our lives through the light of your son, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time we have together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Starting out in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So we start off this morning by looking at the preacher's thoughts on work. And if we read it at face value, his thoughts on work really aren't all that positive. He says that all work is motivated by envy or jealousy of one's neighbor. And according to the preacher, people toil, people work because they simply want to keep up with the Joneses. For him, that's what the motivation is. Clear and simple. Now, there does seem to be some truth to the idea that we often feel pressure to outdo our neighbors. Consider the following study that I recently read. A new study from the San Francisco Federal Reserve concludes that people who earn less money than their neighbors are more likely to commit suicide than their counterparts earning the same income in a less wealthy neighborhood. Given two people earning the same income, the person living in the county with a higher average income was found to be 4.5% more likely to commit suicide than the person living in a lower income area. So this study was done by the San Francisco Federal Reserve, and they discovered something. That often a source of depression or sorrow for many people in our world today is not that they don't have money. It's often that they don't have as much money as somebody else. But if you took some of these same people and surrounded them with people who had less money than they did, maybe they wouldn't be so dark. Maybe they wouldn't have such a somber view of existence. The preacher certainly seems to be on to something. Something that Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30 indicates. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. The preacher says that we work because we envy. We work because we are jealous. That makes it vain. That will make our bones rot rot. Now you step back and you think, really, is that the only reason why people work? Of course, that's not the only reason why people work. Maybe there are people out there who work for the sake of envy or for jealousy, but most of us work because we have to. We have to work in order to survive. The preacher seems to get that. And the next verse, verse five, he says that the one who refuses to work, he uses the phrase, folds his hands, eats his own flesh. In other words, that person starves. And then in verse six, he seems to wrap up the idea of work with the concept of balance. He indicates that it's better to have a balance of rest or quietness along with a balance of work in order to avoid starving due to laziness or exhaustion due to overwork. According to the preacher, dedicating all of your life just to toil for the sake of outdoing others, that's like striving after wind. That truly will make our bones rot. He picks up in verse 7 on the theme of work. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, 
one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Hear that phrase, never satisfied. We're going to come back to that. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The preacher goes into more detail about work, specifically one of the major consequences of this view of work only for the sake of envy. One of the major consequences of this type of work is isolation. He gives the example of a man who works hard. He's trying to keep up with the Joneses. He's never satisfied until he finally surpasses them. He never rests. He never has any quietness. And as a result, that man never stops and asks himself the question, who's going to benefit from all my work? Who's going to benefit from it? And according to the preacher, if he would stop just for a second and ask that question, he'd look around and realize that he is all alone. No one will benefit from his work. He's isolated himself. And what's the point of that? Why would he keep working and keep himself from pleasure? One of the few good things this life has to offer. For the preacher, one of the many problems with this unhealthy view of work is that it can lead to unhealthy relationships or maybe even a lack of relationships entirely. He says that isolation is dangerous. If you fall in a pit, there's no one to help you out. If you get too cold, there's no one to warm you up. And if you get attacked, there's no one to defend you. The point seems to be that if We have an unhealthy view of work. If we toil and we strive just to keep up with the Joneses, our bones will rot and we may find ourselves alone the moment we look up. Now, workaholics out there, because we know they're out there. We live in a time where people work more hours than ever, according to many studies. Workaholics don't ignore this. We may have ways of justifying how much we work, how much time we put in, how much energy it takes up. And yet we can't ignore the sad stories of people who lose their families and lose their friends because they make their work into a God. They worship their work. Work becomes their idol. And before they know it, it ends up rotting their bones. Now, so far. This all sounds like pretty good practical advice. Again, wisdom for life. Don't let your work be driven by envy and jealousy. Work hard in order that you can survive, but also have a balance of rest and quietness. Because if you don't, you may find yourself alone. But then we see him shifting gears a little bit in verse 13, moving from work and into the second category we're going to talk about. This morning, 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. As he leaves the subject of work, he goes to a different subject. And while these few verses are notoriously difficult to interpret, it's hard to tell how many characters there actually are. Are there two different young people? Is there only one person? Who are we talking about? In spite of all that confusion and debate, there does seem to be a specific focus in these verses. That along with work, which the preacher says is vain, status is also vain. He gives the example of a king who isolates himself. We just talked about the dangers of isolation. This king no longer seeks advice from others. He ignores Proverbs 15:22. Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. The preacher gives another character, this example of a poor but wise youth. And now in the ancient world, this whole story would have seemed kind of weird because that's reversed. Old kings are supposed to be wise, not poor youths. And yet in this story, it's the other way around. But like that man we mentioned earlier who works too hard and finds himself asking why he even bothered. Kings fall. Kings fall. No matter where they come from, no matter how humble their beginnings, no matter how wise they are. No matter how big of a following they have, eventually they will fall. Someone else will rise up. Someone else will take their place. And they will not be remembered. The preacher says this too is vanity. The preacher views work as vain when it's all said and done. And he certainly seems to feel the same way about status. Old or young, poor or rich, prisoner or king. It's all meaningless. Because you can acquire all the status in the world, and yet one day when you die, no one will remember you. The two things that people so often made an idol back then are two things that people so often make an idol today. Work and status. The preacher looks at both things and says they are vain. They are emptiness. They are meaningless. They are frustration. We pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. We've covered work. We've covered status. Now we move to the third category. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. We mentioned that we want to hold on to the phrase, never satisfied. We talked about that earlier in chapter 4. 
And here the preacher picks back up on it again, not referring to work, not referring to status, but referring to the third classic idol that we'll talk about this morning. That classic idol is wealth. In the words of theologian at the notorious B.I.G., Mo money, mo problems. It's true. Wisdom for life. The preacher argues that someone who has next to nothing but can sleep well, that person is better off than a rich person who can never find quietness. A rich person who can never rest. Now you hear that and you think, wait a minute. A rich person can't rest? Shouldn't rich people have the best sleep of anybody? After all, they have less to worry about than anyone else. They don't have to worry about food on the table for the next day or a roof over their heads or clothes on their back. What is the preacher talking about? The rich can't rest. Why wouldn't they be able to rest? Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. The preacher says the rich can't rest because their wealth can vanish in an instant. They know that all it takes is one unwise decision and poof, it's all gone. What if you make that bad decision, that bad venture, and you don't have anything to give your descendants? Will it matter then? But not only that, we talked a few weeks ago, even if you work hard, even if you make wise decisions with your wealth, who's to say your descendants won't make unwise decisions and blow it after you're gone? Wealth offers no guarantee to those who come after. And according to the preacher... The rich can't rest because they know they can't take it with them when they die. When you die, especially if you're someone who has worshipped work and status and wealth at the expense of relationships, who gets all the wealth? Someone after you. He says that just as we're born into this world naked, vulnerable, with nothing, the same can be said When we die, what's the point of our work then? This leads the preacher to the same sobering conclusion in verses 18 through 20 that we've already seen multiple times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Sit back, enjoy all this meaningless stuff, this meaningless pleasure while you can, because in the big scheme of things, that's all there is. That's the preacher's conclusion. It's a depressing conclusion. Now, one thing we can take from this is that the Bible and we as God's people have a tense relationship with the three things that we've discussed so far. Work, status, wealth. 
We have to work for the sake of survival and work can be a good God honoring thing before sin enters into the equation. What does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Tend the garden, subdue creation. That's good God honoring work. Work is not inherently evil. But we also know that work can become an idol. What about status? Well, status can be used to honor God. We see that all the time. People who use large stages, large circles of influence to honor God, to build up the church. But we also know that status can be used for vain self-promotion and for selfish gain. And while wealth can certainly be a wonderful blessing from God, it can also be acquired in wicked and unjust ways. And on top of that, as many of us know all too well, it's all too tempting to worship our money and to make it into our God. You take these three things, work, status, and wealth, the classic idols back then and some of the classic idols today. And what do all three of them have in common? What characteristics do they share? Turn to Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. There it is again, that phrase, not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The thing that work, status, and wealth all have in common is that they cannot offer us joy. They cannot offer us meaning. They cannot offer us purpose. And if we look at these three things and we worship these three things, somehow convinced that they will bring us the contentment that we seek, we will eventually discover that our appetite still wanders, no matter how much work or status or wealth we feed it. Our appetite is not satisfied. It's pretty clear the preacher is struggling with something that many of us are familiar with as well. He's struggling with a lack of contentment. The same could be said of the person who worships their work or chases status above everything else or looks for their joy in their wealth. That person is struggling with a lack of contentment. And if we're really honest about it, maybe we struggle with that a little bit more than we realize. And yet the Bible consistently warns us of the futility and the danger of chasing after contentment in work and status and wealth. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We read there, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The things this world has to offer, the things that trick us into believing that they can offer us the joy and the meaning and the contentment that we're looking for. John says all those things are passing away. The world as we know it is passing away. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 16, 26, that it's possible to gain the whole world and yet still lose your soul. It's why Jesus tells the parable in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It's a good problem to have. Verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich towards God. The man in the parable sounds like he had it all. He had worked hard. He'd acquired significant wealth. And one might imagine that with all that wealth, some status could come along with the lifestyle that he can now live. It certainly sounds like he's found momentary contentment. He gets to relax, eat, drink, And be merry. And yet, it's all for nothing when that very night his life ends and his soul is lost. The second this man thought the things of this world would finally bring him contentment, he faces judgment. As an up and coming Jewish leader, Paul probably had access to all the things we've talked about this morning or was well on his way to having these things. There was plenty of work to do, what with that new sect of Christians running around waiting to be killed. There was possibly some impressive status coming along with his education, his training, his potential as the future of the religious leaders. And if we believe what other New Testament passages say about the religious leaders' clothes, their eating habits, their overall lifestyle, it doesn't seem like Paul would ever have to worry about making ends meet. And yet, something happens to Paul. As he's on the road to Damascus, he's knocked off his horse, and things seem to change. His priorities are reset. And we see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, just how drastic this change really is. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says this after sharing his pedigree of just how qualified and how much potential he had as the future of the religious leaders. And yet now, after he meets Christ... Paul says, those things I had before, they're nothing compared to Jesus. They're all loss. Those things are like rubbish to me. 
in chapter 4, Paul can say that he's found contentment in all situations, even as he's sitting in a jail cell. Paul doesn't need the old work or the old status or the old wealth or the old bragging rights that he had before. Because Paul has Christ. And for him, that is enough. He can rest peacefully. His appetite has been satisfied then, and his appetite would be satisfied in eternity as well. The request I make of you this morning is this. Find your contentment, find your joy, and find your meaning in Christ alone. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're here because you are starving. Your appetite isn't satisfied. And the contentment that you hoped that work and status and wealth might offer you, it hasn't quenched that appetite. If that's you, turn to Christ. Only he can offer you the contentment and the joy and the meaning that you seek in this life and in eternity. And only then will you truly rest. And if you're already a Christian, be reminded, as we so often need to be, that Christ is your source of contentment and joy and meaning. It is all too often easy to find ourselves wandering, looking for contentment in other places, but we will only find dead ends. Come back to Christ, to the well that doesn't run dry, that can always quench your thirst. Find your contentment in him, not in the work or the status or the wealth of this world, because the things of this world are passing away. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that after all our searching, all our longing that we do in this life, that you offer us Christ. And God, it is only when we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior that we will ever find contentment, not just in this life, but well after this life has ended. It's so easy for us to look from place to place, to wander, to seek contentment in things that maybe offer contentment for a moment, but then over time run dry. God, I pray that we would be reminded that we find contentment in you. God, we love you. We praise you. We worship you as the source of our meaning, the source of our purpose. We worship you knowing that everything is not vain Everything is not meaningless. Everything is not just about what's under the sun. We ask that you show us grace when we forget that. And God, put people and things in our lives that will remind us to constantly be coming back to you. Because only you will quench our appetites. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What's ironic about finding our contentment in Christ is that Jesus says that the people who want to find their lives will lose their lives. 
What's ironic about it is that the only place that we find contentment is Christ. And we look for Christ when we're tired of looking for contentment in all the things of this world. The thing that offers us contentment is finding our contentment in Christ. So I pray this morning that you would make that decision. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer questions, happy to share their own personal stories about how they have found contentment in Christ, even after looking in lots of other places. So as we sing this last song, talk to one of those guys, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your Sunday.